China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair of China Studies at CSIS, and this week I'm joined by Emily Kilcrease, Senior Fellow and Director of the Energy, Economics and Security Program at the Center for New American Security. Today, we'll be discussing her just-released report, No Winners in This Game, Assessing the U.S. Playbook for Sanctioning China. Emily, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jude. Eagle-eared listeners of the Asia Chessboard will know that Mike Green and I had you on that podcast not that long ago. So I'm going to have to ask you a redundant question, which is, I'd love to hear a bit about your background, but specifically, how did you get to where you are now at a premier DC security think tank thinking about sanctions? Yeah, well, it was mostly an accident. So I'm always a little embarrassed to say that there was no intention behind my career trajectory. But I've been at CNAS for a little over two and a half years now, where I head up, as you you mentioned, the Energy Economics and Security Program. And it's really drawing on and, and building on the work I did as a longtime civil servant in the U.S. government. So I spent a lot of time thinking about economic security issues at the Department of Commerce and at USTR as well as at NSC. And I like to say I was doing this before it was cool to be thinking about economic security or before we even knew what economic security meant. So it's been kind of just a path of following what's interesting and then being right in the middle of this new emerging field that we have on US-China economic competition and economic security. You've just published a very, very comprehensive report. It's almost 100 pages. We'll get into some of the main arguments and sub-arguments, but I wanted to ask you, why did you start working on this report? Were there gaps in the literature? Did you find that the debate on thinking about sanctions was insufficiently robust and mature? What really set you off on this? There was a couple of motivations behind this report. At CNAS, we, of course, spent a lot of time unpacking the sanctions that were imposed against Russia after its invasion of Ukraine and learning lessons from that sanctioning context, which was in many ways unprecedented at the time, given the scale and severity of those sanctions and the degree of allied coordination and just how quickly all of those sanctions rolled out. But we're also a program that focuses a lot on China and against the backdrop of increasing concerns about China's aggressive foreign policy and the potential for more of a crisis or hopefully not, but perhaps a conflict with China at some point, even if those chances are low as an absolute matter, the consequences economically would be really large. And we didn't think that there had been enough deep analytic work to really start to think through what the sanctions response would be if there was a contingency in Taiwan or any other sort of flashpoint where policymakers would look to sanctions. We all kind of know intuitively that it would be really difficult to sanction China, given how connected it is with the global economy, given how large the economy is just as a sheer scale. We also know that if there is potentially a conflict, policymakers will absolutely look to sanctions, right? It's almost certain that they would. And so the question really became, how do we think about how to use this tool? What's the most effective use of this tool? When should sanctions be signaled? When should they be imposed? There are all these sorts of questions that we didn't think had really been answered well, but needed to be just as a matter of kind of responsible policymaking. You mentioned Russia. I wanted to ask what you think we've learned in the aggregate thus far. And I say thus far because, of the course, the war is still ongoing. But more than two years in, what's your sense of what the big takeaways are for you so far in terms of how sanctions came together, how they were sustained, and most importantly, what functional effect do you think they have had on Russia? 
Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I think the big lesson has been about the constraints of sanctions and that they're always going to have a somewhat limited role in the overall geopolitical environment. The rhetoric around the sanctions when they were first unrolled was perhaps overheated, right? We were going to crush the Russian economy. We are going to stop their ability to get technology that mattered on the battlefield. And it made sense at the moment, right? I mean, again, the sanctions that were unveiled were really unprecedented in so many ways. But as the conflict has dragged on, and as the sanctions conflict has dragged on, I think what we've seen is that the Russian economy has been able to not thrive, definitely not thrive, but kind of muddle along. Some of the sanctions have not worked quite as well as we would have hoped. We are still dealing with massive amounts of chips and microelectronics ultimately getting to Russia. Russia's adapting, it's finding new evasion routes, it's becoming this kind of cat and mouse game with enforcement. And we're also learning some really hard lessons, particularly in the energy sector, where it's painful to try to target the Russian energy sector. We haven't fully gotten there yet in terms of like cutting off that source of revenue. We're trying some really creative, innovative things like the oil price cap. They're maybe not working as well as we want them to, right? And so when you put that all together, even though this was this historically large sanctions package and the amount of coordination with Europe and other allies was diplomatically huge and important, we're still seeing that they might not have had the effect actually on the ground that we would want them to. They're imposing costs. They're absolutely imposing costs, but they're not really shifting the needle geopolitically. I wanted to turn now to the report. We're going to get into some of the specifics, but just at a very high level Can you give us the sort of main argument or main arguments that you come to or conclusions you come to in the course of this 100 pages? Yeah, if I can sum up 100 pages in in just a few sentences. The big one is that in order to maximize the effect that sanctions could have, and I should be clear as well, when I say sanctions, I'm really talking about any sort of economic restriction that is used as a coercive instrument. So It's financial sanctions, it's export controls, it's tariffs, it's whatever else we can come up with. But if we really want sanctions to have a maximal deterrent effect or other sort of effect in the context of a broader strategy when it comes to deterring Chinese aggression or other sorts of objectives that we may have, we need to start that preparation now. There is not nearly an amount of institutional capacity that we would need to project future scenarios, think about sanction strategies that would work, think about sanctions escalation letters, coordination with partners, It's a huge challenge. And if we really want to have this tool to be available and effective, then we need to start that now. The other big point that we try to make clear in the report is that there are areas within the U.S.-China economic relationship where the U.S. does have the ability to impose sanctions pressure or sanctions pain on China in a way that is likely more asymmetrically painful for China. But those are a few limited points of leverage. Most of them are very complicated and would involve high costs for the United States and the global economy as well. And China has its own ability to retaliate in some really important ways. So there's no clean kill shot here, right? Like there's no way to sanction China in a way that doesn't also lead to costs for the U.S. and global economies, which back to my first point, that's why we need to start thinking about kind of how to structure and sequence sanctions. How do we think about mitigating the costs on the U.S. and the global economies now so that when, hopefully we never get to this point, but if we get to a point where we need to actually use the sanctions tool, we're doing it in a most effective way to maximize the what we think is modest leverage that we have. The report does not focus on toolkits to use in very specific scenarios. And I know you will have follow-on work 
that will attempt that. So this is more of a high-level landscaping. So just stipulate that for the rest of this conversation, because I think folks may, like myself, only be able to think about these things in the context of specific scenarios, but that's later work. So I'm going to ask a generic question about a generic scenario, which is to say, how do you assess the role that sanctions can play functionally? There's a few different ways that you can think about the effect of sanctions. One is as a deterrent. So that's either an external actor sees the United States formulating a potential coercive toolkit, which it can use later on, and that is baked into that rival's decision-making, and maybe they take door B instead of door A because of that. The second is you use the sanctions at some point early on in the escalation ladder to deter an additional step, or there's the sort of degradation piece. Once a conflict starts, sanctions are there to sort of degrade the ability of the rival to resupply, blah, 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 blah. How do you see or think about sanctions in the course of this report in a generic scenario? Are you weighting this towards sanctions as deterrent, or sanctions as degradation, or something else? Yeah, Jude, as you mentioned in the report, we are taking a rather scenario agnostic approach. And the reason that we wanted to do that is because as soon as you start thinking about sanctions in, for example, a Taiwan contingency, there's all of these additional political layers that you need to take into account, which are really, really important. And we will get to in the next phase of research. But in this initial report, we really wanted to focus on how do these instruments work? Where is their leverage? Where are their costs? And kind of have it serve as a factual baseline. And then we'll build on that in future work. We hope other researchers will take this and build on it and apply it to specific scenarios as well, because that's clearly the next step here. But in terms of what the objectives are, I think that there is a role for sanctions in all of those various stages, whether it's deterrence, degradation, compellence. And in a lot of ways, it's the same sort of economic activity that you're talking about, the same sort of sanctions that you're talking about. But there will be a big difference in terms of whether you're signaling and threatening as opposed to imposing them, right? And obviously, in a deterrence phase, that's where we land in terms of the most utility we can get out of sanctions is in the deterrence phase, right? Like this may be at a phase where we're not talking about direct military action. We need to really build up the credibility of the sanctions threat in the deterrence phase. One of the things that we talk about in the report is that there's a high risk that China can underestimate, misestimate the U.S. credibility to impose sanctions. And I think there's some very good reasons why they might think that the United States would not want to impose strong sanctions, right? And we talk about these in the report, like sanctions will be really costly. They're going to be really risky for the U.S. economy. We're not sure if they're going to work. We're not sure if we're going to have any allies that join us in a sanctioning effort. So China could look at all of those examples uh, and all those complications and just think, well, there's going to be some sanctions, but they're going to be sanctions that we can weather. And so in my mind, that really heightens the importance of trying to build the credibility of that threat early on and find responsible ways that one can signal that without needlessly escalating tensions, right? So that's a really delicate balance. On the other end of the spectrum, right, if you're thinking about being in an active conflict with China and trying to do degradation at that point, it is too late, right? Like all of these sanctions measures take a long time to have effect. When you impose the sanction, it might be years before you see the full effect that you want. That is certainly a lesson that we've learned from the Russia context. And so once you get to that point where you're making good on the threat, you've essentially already lost the sanctions battle, I would argue. Now, there's one other nuance to this that I think is worth considering, which is that certain sanctions, 
And here I'm really thinking about export controls and technology controls. Like if those are actions that are taken now and they do have kind of a degradation impact on Chinese military capabilities now, that can serve as part of a deterrence effect, right? Like if you are substantially degrading Chinese military capabilities such that that influences their decisions to take particular actions, that's a really important dynamic. Well, we can debate whether that's a thing that we can actually achieve, but it is one of the measures that we talk about in the report as needing to do earlier rather than later, because earlier is when you can influence decision-making. And again, these measures take a long time to actually have effect. Building on an earlier comment you made about asymmetric vulnerabilities China can have, I don't want to make you repeat or get into what's in the report because that would be fairly dry listening just to list all of the companies and sectors. But at a high strategic level, can you define sort of categories of where, what are the sorts of sectors and companies and technologies that you think China is vulnerable to U.S. coercive tools And what are the areas where you think China is best placed to withstand possible course of actions from the United States? Yeah, we talk about this in the report in kind of three major categories. We kind of bucket them by objective or area of sanctions activity. So we talk about technology denial, we talk about macroeconomic pressure, and we talk about embargo of commodities, really thinking about like oil and agriculture. And it seems pretty clear to us that where the U.S. has the most distinct advantage is in macroeconomic pressure and in particular financial sector sanctions, right? And so listeners may know, like, China still conducts most of its trade denominated in U.S. dollars. It still holds a significant portion of its foreign exchange reserves in U.S. dollars. When you add in U.S. allies into the foreign exchange calculation, you get up to like 89% of China's foreign exchange reserves. So clearly, their integration into the global financial system, which itself is dominated by U.S. institutions and the U.S. dollar, provides us with a really, really strong point of leverage. China knows this, right? Like, that is probably part of the reason why they're pursuing a digital currency. It's probably part of the reason why they're trying to advance certain energy transactions that are denominated not in dollars. So they're aware of this vulnerability. But so far, the integration into the global financial system still requires them to use the US dollar. And that's that's the clearest point of leverage that we have. It's complicated to use it. There's going to be huge spillover effects to use it, which we can get into. But clearly, there's a US advantage there. It's much more complicated in the other areas, for example, in trying to deny China with access to to oil, for example, they'll have plenty of suppliers like Russia, who will not align with U.S. sanctions, to say the least. Middle East, probably not going to align with U.S. sanctions. It's going to be really hard to use a sanctions first approach to try to get at that area of economic activity. And then we also talk quite a bit about technology denial. And this one is really complicated and it really depends sector by sector. But there are certain sectors like the maritime sector, for example, where China makes a lot of ships, they make a lot of really good ships and their supply chains are predominantly domestic. We can sanction China's maritime sector. It's really not going to have any impact, we don't think, on their ability to field a Navy, right? It's a little bit more complicated in other sectors like chips, of course. The U.S. does have some really important points of leverage in certain areas of the chip sector, like tooling, like electronic design software. But China has its own ability to retaliate in legacy chip production and other critical nodes along the supply chain. And so you can quickly see like a pretty vicious retaliation cycle where China has its own options as well there. So in technology denial, ultimately where we land is that there's kind of a mixed bag of leverage there. 
And the strongest actions that the United States can take are, again, like these long-term options that are going to take a couple of years or longer to really have effect where we're kind of chipping away at some of the broader technology ecosystems that China has in key technology areas. And it's kind of in that light that you can understand things like the October 7th export controls, which is kind of a long-term degradation type of effort. Emily, just building on a point you mentioned about China's reliance on the U.S. dollar, I'm curious, do you see the growing share of renminbi and cross-border transactions as ever reaching a realistic point at which that threat of ripping China out of the U.S. dollar system gets sufficiently degraded such that China no longer worries about that? And I would just... Point readers, there was an opinion piece in the FT by Alicia Garcia Herrero just the other day. The title is Against the Odds China's Push to Internationalize Its Currency is Making Gains. And I forget the precise number, but I I think it's something like share of transactions, cross-border transactions has gone from roughly 2% to 3.5%, which doesn't sound large, especially given that the US dollar is still about half of all cross-border transactions. And I think the euro is 24, 25%. But still, if we're thinking about trajectories, China is now thinking less about the internationalization of the renminbi as a goal that it used to have and more about sanctions proofing itself. And so trying to build relationships where the renminbi can be used instead of the US dollar. Time frame and time scale is important here. So I realize in 100 years, China may get to a point it wants to, but we're not worried about that. Let's say in the next sort of five to 10 years, Is this a story we should be thinking about at all, or is this a sideshow? I absolutely think it's something we need to be watching carefully. And there's an important distinction here, which is that the growing use of China's currency does not need to threaten the dominance of the U.S. dollar in order to present a risk to our ability to sanction China, right? Like, what we need to be watching at this point is their ability to develop alternative rails to move money around the globe or with particular partners in a way that doesn't rely on the the US-dominated financial system that exists today. The scale of those rails today is still really, really small, right? But clearly, if China really is thinking about an action on Taiwan or any other flashpoint that would likely provoke some level of sanctions, they will be thinking about how to sanctions-proof themselves. And I think there's a lot of questions around whether countries in the global south or whether countries like Brazil would have an interest in continuing to transact legally with China, even if China is under a heavy sanctions regime. And so, again, I don't think that any of these moves at this point, even in the next decade, will lead to the U.S. dollar no longer being dominant. There are very good reasons why the U.S. dollar is dominant, right? It is It benefits from network effects. It benefits from the deep and liquid capital markets of the United States. We don't have capital controls. China does have capital controls, right? Like there are still a lot of reasons structurally why China's currency will not internationalize at scale. But again, like that's not the main point. The main point is how much can they use these sorts of alternative systems to blunt the effect of U.S. sanctions, recognizing that If there is a move towards conflict or if they start to be under sanctions, then their incentive to rapidly expand and put pressure on their their trading partners to use those alternative rails will also increase. The report starts, interestingly, I think, with a long section describing the structure and nature of China's political system and its economy and its political economy. I think building on the discussion we were just having, 
Why did you feel like that was an important place to start this discussion? You know, when you're thinking about sanctions, there's obviously a heavy economic element to it, but there's also a political, diplomatic, almost psychological element to sanctions pressure as well. And the question is not just how much sanctions pressure or pain can one impose on another country. It's how much will that country have the resolve to withstand that sort of sanctions pressure. And so that's a main reason why we wanted to start the conversation there. For folks who have read Richard Nephew's book, Art of Sanctions, he talks about this question of balancing pain versus resolve. And that was very much in our minds as we were thinking about that particular section of the report and trying to paint the picture of what is it about China's political system that will make them more resilient to sanctions pressure? And we do think there's some good reasons why they would have strong resilience. We also wanted to be very explicit about how we were viewing these political and economic characteristics, because people might disagree. And if you disagree that China's political system lends itself to strong resiliency against sanctions pressures, then the rest of the report, you're coming to it with a very different perspective. We also know that these factors could change, right? So in that section of the report, we talk about the slowing growth in China and what that might mean for their appetite to do something that would provoke sanctions, or even just their capacity to respond to sanctions. If we're in a different growth trajectory, then again, that changes the picture of how much pressure you can put on China and just what their resiliency posture would be. So that was really the the goal there was to be very explicit about how we were viewing China as a sanctions target and to pin those factors that we think are most relevant so we can keep an eye on them as a kind of a dynamic study. Again, flagging that you're going to be doing follow-on work about specific scenarios, but I wonder if I could ask you, just even at this early phase, as you've been thinking about your work, and of course, as there's this broader discussion happening in DC and other capitals about likelihood or possibilities of various types of scenarios or crises that could occur in and around the Taiwan Strait, and I should note that sanctioning wouldn't necessarily just be used in that scenario. There's other crisis scenarios we could imagine in South China Sea, Second Thomas Shoal, among others. But do you think of differing strategies to be used in different types of scenarios? In particular, let's say there is a blockade type scenario where it's likely that the next step is not necessarily going to be a Chinese all-out invasion, but this is some sort of gambit by Beijing to try to demonstrate the lack of US resolve and convince Taiwan that it's isolated. So that's kind of scenario one. Scenario two is something where it looks like there's a more all out assault or attack on Taiwan. How does that affect what you think the right strategic way to think about sanctions is? In the report or in follow on work, is there just a qualitatively and quantitatively different toolkit one would bring to bear on option one, a blockade versus option two? You know, I think the main difference would actually be what you're signaling and what you're imposing in those scenarios. Under scenario one, if you are not sure that it's a full-on invasion, but what you're trying to do is signal resolve, you could, for example, see, I mean, I would hope that you would see at that point, a certain amount of sanctions that are actually imposed, right? Like you could easily imagine a whole bunch of blocking sanctions on Chinese military entities and entities that are associated with supporting China's military in the commercial sector. You would probably see personal sanctions being imposed at that point, potentially. But I think probably at that point, what you don't see is like the full sanctions attack on China's financial system, right? I think there are some of those really strong options, which could be seen as in and of themselves, like an act of economic war that just will not be 
imposed and there likely would not be the political resolve either in the United States or with our allies to impose until China does the thing, whatever that thing it is that we define. So I think it's really the balance of in a embargo scenario, you want to be able to make that credible threat that you're going to go all the way. But I don't think that we actually consider imposing those most strict measures until China does the bad thing first. On that credibility issue, do you have any tentative early thoughts about what are steps that can be taken that build credibility? And I realize this is in part a Freudian exercise of trying to understand how Xi Jinping and the senior leadership are themselves assessing credibility, but any early tentative thoughts on that? Yeah, I think there's two things that come to mind that we've been thinking about on this credibility piece of things. I mean, one is making sure that the credibility is integrating allies and partners, because I think that's the big thing, right? Like unilateral U.S. sanctions will not work, and China will be most concerned if it is a coordinated approach. What's wrong with unilateral approaches, given that a lot of the heft and pain delivery is in many ways based on the size and power of the United States. Why do we need Germany along with us if we're thinking about inflicting pain on China? So the U.S. does have certain options that appear to be strong unilaterally. But when you actually play that out, I think it gets really complicated and really porous pretty quickly. So for example, look at the foreign exchange reserves and what would happen if the U.S. imposed a sanction on China's central bank, the PBOC. The, in our calculations, the U.S. comprises 56% of the China's foreign exchange holdings. That leaves 44% for China to play with to think about setting up alternative rails, to think about evasion, to think about just continuing to engage in economic activities and macroeconomic activities. I would much rather have that number be 90%, right? Like, And so even where the U.S. does have an advantage, that advantage is always stronger and it is always amplified when we have partners. There's other examples, like, for example, in the technology space, if you're thinking about aerospace, if you don't have Europe on board, then issuing export controls or sanctions is just going to hurt the U.S. companies and do nothing to kind of impair Chinese capabilities over the long term. So the U.S. does have some of these kind of important unilateral points of leverage. But again, like overall, our leverage is modest. And if we really want to go high up the escalation ladder and be able to threaten like a maximal threat, that's going to mean that we need partners with us in order to really kind of have that scary effect that you want the sanctions threat to have. Can I ask an indelicate question, which is... If there is an event of the magnitude to where the United States is contemplating using unprecedented sanctions against China, is there a realistic world in which we're going to allow the Europeans to be circumventing or otherwise? I'm not trying to become a unilateralist here and saying they'll do what we want. I don't mean that at all, but I'm just trying to think out loud about, I completely buy your point on coalitions are better than unilateral actions, but I'm also trying to think of In the world in which this is realistically happening, what choice do our partners and allies have? There's two ways you can answer that question, right? So one is that the U.S. imposes sanctions and partners and allies are with us, but like not all the way with us, right? Like they impose sanctions, but they don't match the the scale and severity of what the U.S. does. That is not a great outcome, but diplomatically, that's not a horrible outcome if we're able to kind of package things together in a way that looks unified, right? Because like part of this is demonstrating unity and demonstrating kind of international naming and shaming of China's aggressive acts, right? There's 
A worse scenario in which partners don't really impose meaningful sanctions at all, and the U.S. then tries to extend the reach of its sanctions through the use of extraterritorial tools, which we have heard appear to love these days, right? Like when you're thinking about the foreign direct product rule and export controls or secondary sanctions. But then again, like play that out one or two more steps. If European companies continue to engage in transactions with Chinese companies who are under secondary sanctions, is the United States then going to sanction a bunch of European companies at a moment when we're trying to demonstrate like united resolve against acts of Chinese aggression? Like that gets really, really messy. I am skeptical that we would take enforcement actions against European companies in that really horrible kind of messy scenario. And so you can see how that gets ugly. It gets muddled. Like I would think that like Beijing might love that sort of scenario. Yeah. And it strikes me too, that the point about forcing partner and ally compliance comes into play once a conflict is started. But if part of the role here is to send a a potential deterrent signal, the more countries willing to engage in these discussions with us early, I think strengthens the potential deterrent signal. And also, and this is a guess, my sense is one of the things Beijing would be doing in early phases or the lead up to a conflict is trying to suss out what the potential size of a broader coalition, including military, including diplomatic actions. And so the more countries that are in the conversation with the United States, and the more those conversations appear to be organically evolving and not forced by the United States, that essentially other countries are coming to much the same conclusion about the need to head off a conflict by warning Beijing that as best you can do, that would factor into Beijing's overall cost calculus. And so again, this is where whether you're thinking about sanctions as deterrent or degradation matters, because I completely buy the point of, look, if we're in a war and U.S. servicemen and women are dying, the United States is not going to be playing nice with allies and partners who are trying to hedge, sit on the fence. But I think we've already lost to some extent at that point, and the real focus now should be thinking about and building credibility of deterrent signals that we can send. Anyway, I didn't mean to ask a question, which I therefore then went ahead and waited on. How are you thinking, how's your thinking evolving on how, where, when, what sequencing cadence and who the United States needs in the coalition that will be reading your report, nodding along and saying, yeah, we want to participate. Any other additional thoughts other than partners matter? Yeah. You know, and at the risk of making this a a boring podcast, I I agree with everything you just said in the answer to your own question. (laughs) (laughs) In terms of, I do think these conversations are already happening to a certain extent, right? Like you can look at the G7 leader statement on economic resiliency. It's a very carefully worded statement. They are not talking about sanctions preparation, but they are definitely talking about de-risking and resiliency. And that is pretty much about China, right? And so I think there is work that's already going on that can lead to these sorts of conversations around deterrence and sanctions preparation if they need to. And maybe they already are behind the scenes, right? Like we don't have full visibility into that. And I do think that it is too soon to kind of count out Europe, for example. Like I think we are seeing shifts in European attitudes towards China. Clearly, they're not exactly where the United States is. Clearly, there's a ton of divergence between member states, between the commission and member states, all of those complexities involved with working with Europe. But at the same time, I think the conversation is shifting. And I think if the United States is able to come to the table with like clear, well-reasoned arguments supported by facts and intelligence about why we are concerned about Chinese aggression and that we have a plan or a start of a plan that we would like to discuss with them around 
prudent ways to think about sanctions in a manner that doesn't devastate our own economy. Like, I think that's a conversation that allies and partners would have with us, or at least I hope they would. Final question, Emily, which is, are we undercutting or potentially zapping some of the effectiveness of a potential sanction strategy by having really great DC scholars write 100-page reports that think out loud and in the open source about where China's vulnerabilities are, what the specific industries and companies we should sanction. How do you think about that issue? And as we were saying before we recorded, I would love it if I could find somewhere online some report that's 100 pages written by former Chinese government officials working in economic statecraft, laying out their counter sanctions strategy. So how do you think about the balance between pushing the conversation and revealing? (laughs) Well, that's a good question, Jude. (laughs) I don't think that there's anything in this report really that Chinese officials aren't already thinking about. And I do think, like, again, our main theme in the recommendations section of the report is that the best thing that we can do now in the U.S. and with our partners is preparation and resiliency. So this is really a call for preparation, right? And so I would think, especially since the report is now out and the cat is already out of the bag here, Jude, that (laughs) the need to have these sorts of conversations, the beauty of our open democratic system in which we have robust debates about these sorts of things in public, I think that that is the important thing here, is China reading this, sure. There is another message in here, which is that the U.S. will definitely do some sanctions, right? And so that should be a message that China should be listening to as well. Yeah, I agree. And also, I completely believe that this report will galvanize conversations and will be widely read and utilized in foreign capitals and allied and partner capitals. So there's always this kind of trade-off between do you act like the Communist Party and have all these conversations secret and behind closed doors, or do you take advantage of our democratic public sphere and basically put this out and then it's a tool to drive the conversation and action. So I definitely fall in the latter camp, but just felt compelled to ask you the question nonetheless. Emily, first of all, just really congratulations on a really magnificent report where the amount of thought and attention to detail and pragmatism, but also forward-leaning analysis in this is just really striking. So folks who don't feel like they're going to read a 100-page reporting. It's still worth opening the document and browsing it. There's a set of recommendations up at the top. Even just the first five or 10 pages, I think, will give folks a good sense of this. And, and as you say in the report and said here, this is just the beginning of this work for you. So hope listeners are on the lookout for future work by Emily and her team that's really putting this toolkit to bear on specific scenarios. And hope that Xi Jinping reads this as well. Because as you say, I think one of the key takeaways on this is this would be catastrophic for China. Even if the United States did not lift a finger, the Taiwan people will. And so inherently in any type of crisis, I hope Beijing understands there's no clean path here, that the economic effects of this would be significant, bordering on catastrophic for them. And maybe that's a message that Xi Jinping's underlings won't deliver to him. But I think the best we can do is to keep hitting this point. So thanks for your work. Thanks for your time. and look forward to the future work. Yeah. Thanks, Jude. It's always great working with you and CSIS. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog of 